If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I, I really do hope you have a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and turn to First Peter. Uh, we're going to be in First Peter chapter one this morning. It's uh, it's towards the back. If you see Hebrews and James, you're getting close. Uh, you're in the neighborhood. If you see Second Peter. You've gone like two pages too far. Just just back up. Um, I hope you all had a Merry Christmas. That will probably be the last time I'm going to say those words for close to 12 months. Um, our family's had a busy Christmas season. We had a whole, you know, a whole new person move into our house um, for such a for such a small child. They come with a lot of baggage, uh, a lot of a lot of stuff to put him in, hang him in, sit him in, bounce him in. The modern strategy of, of child rearing appears to be don't let him get too used to any one apparatus. Just just keep him guessing. Um, but in all seriousness, thank you all for your encouragement and prayers as we welcome little baby baby Logan into the world. Our church family has been a, a source of, of such real blessing to us in so many ways. And we're genuinely grateful uh, to be a part of this family of faith. And just as a side note of encouragement to you, Thanks to your many uh, monogrammed gifts, our child should know his initials and be able to spell his name before he can even talk. Um, so, so, you know, well done you. Um, this, this, ter- this church takes early childhood identity seriously, um, and that's, that's a good thing. And now that we're officially through with Christmas, we're going to jump right into full-out Happy New Year mode uh, for the next couple of weeks, and that should be fun. So get used to hearing Happy New Year, Happy New Year's, and any variety of ways of saying that for the next few weeks. As we have moved uh, progressively through the Advent season, uh, Dr. Weldon has preached on the meaning of the Incarnation. He's preached on the reality that God, uh, the eternal Logos, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. How the second person of the Trinity, the Son, the, the one who is the same in substance, and equal in power and glory with the Father and the Spirit. How that one, how that Son, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, uh, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We've looked at how, how the humiliation of Christ, and that's really, that's really, his, that's really from conception uh, to resurrection. The humility of Christ displayed the truth about who God is, and gives us a right perspective on everything in this life, uh, even human suffering. Because when your rightful place is in heaven, when you are holy, when you are righteous, everything that happens to you here, all of it, walking, needing to eat and drink for nourishment, uh, going to the bathroom, sleeping, all of that, every speck of that is suffering. And so, yes, the cross is the ultimate example of Christ's humility, the ultimate example of Christ's suffering. It's the pinnacle. It's the apex example. There's no greater example that you will find. But you have to see that the entire span of Jesus' earthly life can rightly be characterized as suffering for the sake of the kingdom of God. And if Jesus, the God-man himself, the one who made all things, the source of light and life, would come and suffer here, that the king himself would suffer, why would we as citizens of the kingdom, the people of God, Expect anything different for ourselves. Yes, as we've walked through this Advent series with Dr. Weldon, I hope you've seen anew the magnitude of what the incarnation is for us. I hope that it's been a reminder uh, that Christmas is less about a season and more about a life. 
and a light that came into the world and shone in the darkness. And the fact that we are here today, the fact that you and I are here today reflects the truth that the darkness has not overcome that light. And with that as sort of a launching pad for us, I want us to turn now to First Peter. We've looked at the life of Christ, and now we're going to see how his life has left a lasting impact and how it continues to do that today. First Peter uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Lord, I pray that you would come now, uh, that you would come and, and take over here, that you would come and do your work here. I pray that my stammering tongue uh, wouldn't be a roadblock for anybody hearing your word this morning, but that you might speak and that we might hear. Lord, we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're still here. Uh, if you looked at the outline, you might have noticed the title for today. Now, I know that that is about the most obvious statement that I can make. I am fully aware of the apparent lack of profound meaning and depth in those three words, because anyone who is here already realized before I said anything that they were here. In other words, uh, if you knew anything, anything at all, and I know Christmas was just a couple of days ago and you're still trying to get your bearings here, but if you knew anything, you knew that you were here. And what I want us to see is that the fact that we are here, The fact that we're still here means that God still has work for us to do. The fact that we're still here means that God is not finished with us just yet. And that's the same thing that Peter is writing this letter to the early Christians to say. If we just consider the language that he uses to describe the recipients in verse 1, we'll see he calls them elect exiles of the dispersion. Uh, Different translations. If you have a different translation, you might see uh, the word aliens there. You might see pilgrims. Uh, strangers in the world. But the heart of what he's getting at is that they're here, 
but they don't really belong here. We're here, but this is not our home. I remember going on a uh, mission journey, a short-term mission journey to Romania uh, with this church when I was in high school. Our youth group, our youth group went there. We landed in Hungary. Uh, then we drove on a bus from Hungary into Romania. And I remember, I remember reaching the border and seeing a gate. I remember this very vividly. Uh, it was so different than anything that I had ever experienced here in the States. Um, and I remember that the gate had two watchtowers. And the watchtowers had guards. And the guards had machine guns. And then the guards with the machine guns got on the bus. And they, they examined our passports. They looked at us very sternly. Uh, they had some questions about what we were doing, trying to come in there. Um, and, and, and even though they eventually let us in, uh, we, were, we were all left with a very clear understanding that we were there. But we didn't really belong there. Uh, we were there, but they didn't really want us there. And then even beyond that, we weren't sure we really wanted to be there either. Um, that's the idea of being an exile. You have a home, you have a, you have a destination that you want to get to, but you aren't there. Instead, you're here. See, Peter understood the reality of the Christian experience. He knew what it was like to be in your earthly home among your own tribe and still be in exile. You might recall that as Simon, the brother of Andrew, he was a Galilean Jew, a fisherman by trade who had left the family business, left the family town, And left the comfort and security of those surroundings to follow a man who came to him and said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And that man, the one who called him, changed his name. He knew that these Christians, these exiles in Asia Minor, this is modern day Turkey, were living as pilgrims, strangers in the world and as exiles. They are wanderers, but they're not aimless wanderers. It's the same reality that Paul points out in Philippians 3.20 when he writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, as citizens of heaven, if you are a Christian, you have a new allegiance. You have an allegiance to a king and to a kingdom. Being elect, uh, chosen by God from before the foundation of the earth, we are his people being transformed by the grace of God and Christ. And the very first word of this letter, Peter's own name speaks to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in his life. Because Peter, as we've already said, wasn't always Peter. That's not the name that his family had given him. In Matthew 16, 18, it's Simon, the son of Jonah, the man who left it all behind to follow Jesus, who Jesus says to him, you, after, after Peter has made the great confession, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's to that man that Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's Jesus who gave him a new name. It's Jesus who calls out Peter as a new person. There is a reason that this letter is called the first letter of Peter and not the first letter of Simon. And it's because Jesus had made him a new person. And it's also Jesus who reminds Peter when he stopped living like Peter and has reverted to living more like Simon. We see that in John 21 when the resurrected Jesus restores Peter following his denial of Christ leading up to the the crucifixion. We see in the next phrase, just after he gives his name, in the very next words, he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. In saying that, he's saying that the authority that Peter has does not rest in his name, but it rests in the name giver. 
It rests in the name giver. And that is so important. And it's as an apostle, one, one called and sent out, a commissioned messenger of God. It's as that man that Peter writes. This man who once boasted of his own strength and courage only to shrink from and even hide from persecution now speaks with power and authority, with the power and authority of the Lord as an apostle. And that's almost the extent of the personal biographical information that Peter even gives. What a change has happened in this man. The transforming power of salvation, the work of the Trinity. We see the entire thing here in verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. You see the entire Trinity right there at work together. God is working this man's life in such a powerful way that he now claims the name Peter. He's owning it, fully aware of what that means. Uh, Some have... Some have questioned the authorship of this book because it lacks uh, firsthand historical references. They say, if Peter had written these, surely he would have told us what it was like to walk with Christ on earth. If Peter had written this, surely he would have said, listen, when we were sitting at the table, this is what it was like. When Jesus came with that bowl of water, here's what I was thinking. And then he started washing my feet. He would have said that if it was Peter. But this is misguided thinking. I'm not a scholar. Um, And I've never claimed to be one, but I can tell you that it is wrongheaded for anyone to assume that this letter isn't from the hand of Peter because it doesn't include elements of firsthand past experience. We have to understand that Peter is less interested in telling you what it was like to walk with Christ. And his primary focus, the goal of this letter, is to tell us what it is like to walk with Christ. And there is a difference. One is past. One is present. Peter is writing to those who are walking currently with the Lord. There's no need to tell you about the past. Let me tell you about right now. This is Peter's aim. And this, again, is evidence of a transformed life. The one who once cowered in fear because of his relationship with Jesus now boldly proclaims the goodness of Jesus and encourages other believers to keep their eyes on Christ. Even in the face of trying times, it's like Paul in Philippians 3, where he says, whatever gain I had, and Peter had comfort, he had security, he had a family business, he had things going for him. I don't know if he was a great fisherman, but he was doing enough to make it. He had those things, whatever gain I had, this is what Paul writes, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, you see the people who were reading this letter, much like many Christians today, were feeling levels of growing persecution. Now, at this point in history, there's no official state-sponsored program of oppression being enacted against the Christian community, at least that we know of. We haven't found anything yet that says that was happening. There was, however, a growing level of resentment of this tribe of people coming out of the Jewish tradition. As we've worked through the book of Acts over the course of this past year and seen the ministries of Paul in areas like Ephesus, we've seen that when cultural norms and Christian convictions collide, there are real and tangible ramifications. And this letter is largely written to exhort the children of God and encourage them to carry on their pilgrimage toward their eternal inheritance, to keep their eyes looking forward to the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. Look back at verses 3 and 4 with me. 
He begins by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The meaning of the word blessed there simply means to speak well of. Uh, Peter is going to tell us, he's going to unpack why God is worthy of being spoken well of. And so Peter continues, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Now listen to this, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is a gospel reminder. Peter is writing to believers. Don't forget that. Verse 1 makes it clear that he's writing to elect exiles. And here's the point. Here's the whole point of this entire sermon. You, in 2013, for a couple more days, are an exile. If you are a Christian, you're an exile. And in verse 3, he is reminding them and us of who we are. It's this blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has, according to his great mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope. And why is this hope called a living hope? Look at the next words in verse 3. Look at it. You, you need to see it. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope, your hope, my hope, is a living hope because Jesus is alive. It's, I've said it before. Um, I'm going to say it again. The problem with Jesus for the secular mind is not that he died. It's not that he went to the cross. It's not that they nailed him to a tree. It's not that they rammed a spear into his side, spilling blood and water. It's not that they wrapped him in linen and buried him in the side of a hill. No, the problem with Jesus is not that he died. The problem with Jesus is that he didn't stay that way. And Peter, Peter's reminding these people that their hope isn't buried in the earth. But our hope is a living hope because our hope walked out of the tomb and is alive today. And his life is the guarantee of this inheritance, an inheritance that Peter describes as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And listen, an inheritance is a deeply personal thing. It's a family thing. We might think of the parable of the prodigal son who asked for and received his inheritance before his father had passed away. And how that was a highly offensive request. A request whereby he was effectively saying, I just want your stuff. I'm not that interested in you. Just give me what's coming to me so that I can move beyond this life. And we know that that inheritance, the inheritance that that son received was lost, that it was squandered and reckless living. That inheritance went away and he eventually shared meals not with people, but with pigs And the reality is that this is true of all earthly inheritances. They all fade away. Some more rapidly than others. Um, Historically, from the Vanderbilts to the Woolworths, the legacy of financial inheritance vanishing from one generation to the next is staggering. In fact, a Wall Street Journal article from March of... By the way, I don't read Wall Street Journal like regularly. I looked this up and found it. Um, from March of this year, said research has found 90% of inheritance is often depleted by the third generation. And that's why the language Peter uses here is so practical. The inheritance of the Christian is imperishable. That means it will not be destroyed. It's eternal. He's going beyond saying that the inheritance won't perish. He's saying that it can't perish. It's not an option. The security of this inheritance isn't found in any bank or investment. It's not in wishful thinking or good luck, but it's found in the empty tomb in our resurrected Lord. The next thing he says is that the inheritance of the Christian is undefiled. 
It's pure. It's clean. You know, when you, uh, when you have a newborn, you, you become hyper aware of the marked difference between something that is clean and pure and something that is, that is defiled. Um, a couple, couple dirty diapers into that game, and you know the difference between something clean and pure and something that, that you just don't want any part of. Um, this inheritance is clean. Being attached to it actually improves your situation. It's undefiled and can't be defiled because it was bought with the blood of the spotless Lamb of God. And lastly, Peter says that the inheritance of the Christian is unfading. It's vibrant, never losing its luster. We have a couple of azaleas in our front yard. I think it's the south. It's kind of a rule. You have to have some azaleas, so we do. Um, They're they're nothing special, not even the same color. Even I, I got them at Lowe's, cheapest ones I could find. Just plain old azaleas. But when they bloom, for that week or so that they are in bloom, they are beautiful. Um, you would think it's Augusta National at our house when those things burst forth in color. It's just spectacular, right? But then, as you know, something happens. What once were vibrant and beautiful become drab and dull, just, just green plants covered in dead reminders of what they once were for but a moment. And it's just as Isaiah 40, uh, in Isaiah 40, verse 8, it says, the, the grass withers, the flower fades. This inheritance, the hope of the Christian, is unfading. It's always beautiful. And Peter uses this negative language, or describing what the inheritance is not, because this inheritance is in direct contrast to everything else you have ever known. Everything else. You have never held in your hands anything that is imperishable. Because of the fall of man into sin and the catastrophic effects of sin on this whole earth, you have never touched anything. You've never touched anything that is undefiled. And as we know, everything in life is fading. This is our present condition. Many of you have experienced that over the course of this year, what it means to see things fade. Many of you feel the effects of that every day. The inheritance for the Christian is not of this world. It is not anything that you can touch, taste, smell, or see. And that's why Peter commends these believers in verse 8, who, though you have not seen him, you love him. He goes on to say that even though they don't see him, they believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Here again, we have this negative language of joy that cannot be expressed. It's impossible to even quantify the joy that the Christian experiences having been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The fact of the matter is that this inheritance is so far removed from what we know that it is easier for Peter to say what it is not than to say what it is. This is the same language that we see in 2 Corinthians 9 where Paul calls the surpassing grace of God his inexpressible gift. And you wonder, you wonder why you have a hard time clearly expressing your thoughts when it comes to the Lord. You wonder why it's hard to say what it is you know, even though you know you know it. Even Peter, like the Peter, the one who actually walked across water for several steps, the one who saw the Holy Spirit fall and even had the Holy Spirit fall on his head in a tongue of fire at Pentecost, that Peter says that the joy of the Christian is inexpressible. It's beyond words. Our language falls short. And here's the thing. These people, these early Christians didn't live in a dream world. 
I think there's a huge misconception that the people of the Bible sort of existed in a foreign, uh, independent realm where everything was different than it is here. So we forget that Paul was a guy who made huge mistakes, even, even had Christian blood on his hands. We forget that David was a guy who struggled with lust even after he was married and had kids. We forget that Moses murdered a guy and doubted that God could use him and even actively resisted being used. And even Father Abraham, that Father Abraham, the one with many sons, we forget that he was a guy who we have a record of him attempting to lie in order to protect his own health and safety. A guy who was willing to let his wife pay for his sins. These are real people with real struggles, just like Peter and just like us. Look at verse 6. Get verse 6, and this you rejoice, this being that inheritance, you rejoice in that inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Please do not miss this. Their lives aren't easy. This is not a Disney movie. I think there's this idea that they just sort of burst into song anytime something goes wrong and, and kind of dance. I have no record of Peter dancing anywhere in my Bible. In verse 7, in verse 7, we see that they were experiencing trials, that their faith is being tested. You see, there is this tension that exists between the peace that the elect have in him and the tribulation that they have to endure as exiles in the world. Peter knows it, but more importantly, Jesus knows it. Just to bring us back to the... Advent season and the reality of the incarnation, Jesus knows. He knows what it's like to be tested. He knows what it's like to be tempted. In fact, because we know that he was tempted and never sinned, we can know that he was tempted far beyond any of our normal limits. I give in to sin far too quickly to know what it's like to have the world throw everything at me in order to get me to veer off course. Jesus had it all thrown at him. You remember Satan tried to tempt Jesus in Matthew 4, and he said, all these I will give you, all the kingdoms of the world. He says, I'll give all of these to you if you will fall down and worship me. Do you remember what Jesus said to Satan that day? He told him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Many of us given to sin with the promise of a minute of pleasure, a possibility of material comforts, or just the casual stroke to our own pride. We give in at the promise of much less than all the kingdoms of the world. But you see, Jesus knew the truth. He knew the truth. He knew that Satan loves to make promises that he'll never be able to keep. That's what liars do. In order to get what they want, they say all sorts of things, make all sorts of promises, and guarantee any number of results, all of which are like grass that withers and flowers that fade. But we know the end of Isaiah 40. We know that, yes, the grass withers and the flowers fade. We've seen that. We've experienced that. We, we know the pain of that. But, and that's a big three-letter word in Isaiah 40, but, but the word of our God will stand forever. See, that's why this faith is more precious than gold. Because unlike gold that dulls, that will eventually fade, that according to Radio commercials, you're going to trade in for cash or whatever anyway. So the, the sure inheritance of salvation in Jesus Christ will never fade, never become dull, and never be taken away. And this is not a new story. What you're hearing today, what we are reading today, is not a new story. 
Peter's not the first one to tell it. Look at verses 10 and 11. I'm going to read it one more time. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the story that God has been telling throughout history. It's the story of God preserving a people for himself, for his own glory, keeping them from falling away, guarding them even from themselves, and coming into the world that they have broken and saving them from the death that they deserve. You see, even the prophets knew that their message wasn't only for a certain time. Their message was from an eternal God, and therefore their message was and is an eternal message. And since we're still here, this is the message that we have been given to share with the world. Since we're still here, we know that God is not finished with us, and His work for us on earth is not finished either. You see, the glory of our salvation... Our inheritance is not that we have obtained it, but that God has given it. The glory of our salvation is not that we somehow managed to get it, but that God has given it. That though we were far off, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ, reconciled to God the Father by the sacrifice of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. And in Christ, you too are a new creation. You are here But this is not your home. And so we live with a vision toward the future, toward the final consummation in the new heavens and the new earth, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. This past week, uh, you gave gifts, sweaters, games, gym memberships that you're going to forget about, Um, maybe some toys to your kids. If you're like us, some of those things have already broken. Some of those sweaters have already had a newborn spit up on them. That's a true story. That actually happened. Um, They've already become defiled. As soon as you washed them, they began to fade. And by next year at this time, a lot of those gifts will have perished. They'll be in the trash. But this gift of salvation in Christ Jesus, according to His great mercy, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in Christ in heaven for his people, a people of purpose, saved for his glory. God, help us to live like it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you for this inexpressible gift. How foolish it is to even stand up here and begin to describe what it is you've done for us when everything we know of you is that you're so far better so far greater, so holy, and so righteous. And we fall so short of that. But God, in your grace, you sent your Son to come here. And we celebrate that today. Lord, we celebrate that every day. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.